If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I had a really neat opportunity over the last couple of days. There's a ministry um, really strong here in Texas, spreading across the country, called College Golf Fellowship. It's, like, it's kind of like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, but it, it has a real focus on college golfers. Um, Matt Van Zant is the staff member here in Houston. Some of you Aggies might remember Matt Van Zant won a national championship, golf national championship with the Aggies several years ago. He's a wonderful brother, and he's ministering to college golfers at all of the college campuses here in the Houston region. And he asked me to come speak at their first ever College Golf Fellowship Houston region retreat. And so I got to speak to these golfers, some of them from the University of Houston, some from the University, or Rice University, um, Texas Southern, along with a couple of the coaches, Thursday night, Friday morning, and then again on Friday afternoon. And we had a great time together. The first night together, we just did a broad overview of the Bible. And if you know me, you know that I love that. Tried to keep it real practical, tried to keep it real Jesus-centered, and they really seemed to enjoy it. On Friday morning, we talked about Jesus. And if you've been around here, you know that I love to preach about Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became a man and lived a holy life and died a substitutionary death and rose bodily from the grave and authoritatively commissioned his church and was exalted to his Father's right hand and is coming back one day. Let's follow him. They seemed to really enjoy that. And then Friday afternoon, a message that I heard years ago from Prof. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary and then from Tom Nelson and probably every pastor who's ever been a student of Prof. Hendricks has given the talk on master, mission, and mate. That to young men, the three most important decisions you will ever make in your life is who will you serve, what will you live for, and who Will you marry? We had a good time with that one as well. And I love talking about mission. What will you live for to young men? What I try to encourage them to think about is that it really has nothing to do with what you will do to make a living. It has everything to do with what you will live for. And the reason I enjoy it so, so often is because I get to talk about so many of you, who to make a living might be a doctor, or to make a living might be in sales, or to make a living might be a teacher, or to make a living might be doing this or doing that, but that's not what you're living for. Yeah, you do that to pay the bills, and you find a real sense of calling in it, which is wonderful, but at the end of the day, what you're living for is the glory of God. What you're living for is the welfare of the church. What you're living for is to help people come to know the great love of God in Jesus Christ. I say to them that the best people in our church, not me, and it's not Antonio, and it's not Marcus or Lauren, the best people in our church are the men and women 
who may be doing this or that, but who are living for the glory of God, the welfare of his church, and reaching people far from God. The text this morning will get into a bit of that. Just what is it that you and I have been called to? Really, I think there's at least four things here that Jesus calls all of us to, those who would be his disciples. And if you were here with us last week, you remember me saying that the Gospel of Mark really is, if you had to zero down to one thing that Mark is trying to do through this Gospel, it is to show us what true discipleship is all about. I think I quoted to you John Grasmick, New Testament prophet, Dallas Seminary. He said it like this, Mark's purpose was basically pastoral. The Christians in Rome had already heard and believed the good news of God's saving power, but they need to hear it again with a new emphasis to catch afresh its implications for their lives in a dissolute and often hostile environment. They needed to understand the nature of discipleship, what it meant to follow Jesus in light of who Jesus is and what he had done and would keep doing for them. Like a good pastor, Mark presented the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in a way that would meet this need and continue to shape his readers' lives. They needed to understand the nature of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And it's in our text this morning that we have those famous words of Jesus, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, right across our foyer, we have that little bit bigger, that room over there, we call it the 419 from Matthew 4, verse 19, where Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So here we have this great call of Jesus. But I want to point out four things about the call that I see in the text. The first is that this seems to be a call to suffering and to service. Jesus says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And again, the Jewish expectation of the kingdom of God is that Messiah would come, defeat their enemies, vindicate his people, establish his kingdom, and rule and that all would be well for God's people. That was the expectation, a visible kingdom, if you will, of great power, even glory, for God's people. The Romans would be defeated, Messiah would be enthroned, and all would be well. But of course, the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate was not like that yet. The first clue that Mark gives us in verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody. What? 
John is the great forerunner to the Messiah. John's the man. Mark had already quoted back in verses 2 and 3 from Exodus 23 and Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah 40 about the messenger who would come, and he said John was that guy. The great anticipated messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. He was something else. And this one who came and said, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That one got arrested, seized. We'll see him again in chapter 6, what ultimately would happen to him. beheaded. Just like we saw last week, in chapter 1, verse 1, down through 13, the beginning of this gospel, what we saw about Jesus is that he was the one anticipated in the Old Testament, of whom God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, who then immediately God sent into the wilderness to be opposed by Satan, surrounded by wild beasts. And the very next phrase is, and after John was taken into custody. I said to those young men when I finished up, on Friday afternoon, hey, I got a final word for you. Don't quit. I said, I hope I'll see you guys again, but I may never see you again until glory. Until then, don't quit. Because the reality is you'll be tempted to a thousand times over. Because following Jesus Christ isn't always easy. Being his disciple and walking in the steps of Jesus, if Mark has anything to say about it, is walking in the steps of one who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. The way of Jesus the way of discipleship is following him who was mocked, who was betrayed, who was lied about, who was tortured, and who was killed. You know, Jesus predicted this about himself three times later in the gospel. It's one of the literary features that Mark uses, and we'll talk about it more when we get there. But he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never. Lord, you're the Messiah, that you would suffer? No way. 
From there they went on and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he's been killed, he will rise three three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do? Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in glory. He just told them he's going to be condemned, handed over, mocked, spit on, scourged, killed. Just as Jesus was led into the wilderness to be opposed by Satan, surrounded by the wild beasts, And just as John was seized because he was a man of righteousness, so too might we suffer as we seek to follow Jesus and be faithful to him. Mocked, ridiculed, lied about, and more. hesitate to use this example because I never know what tomorrow brings but my little sweet Molly she's 11 years old she's not here today we were out at Pine Cove all day yesterday and serving out there and they served this morning and they're on their way back but sweet little Molly's a fifth grader and best she knows she's trying to walk with Jesus and to her part of what it means to walk with Jesus is not to say bad words like everybody else is saying bad words. But everybody else is saying bad words. And she didn't want to say the bad words. And because she didn't want to say the bad words, some of the other kids, some of her friends are kind of making fun of her for it. She's having a hard time with that because she don't want to be made fun of. She wants to be liked. She wants to be part of the crowd. She wants to be a cool little fifth grade girl. The way of following Jesus. Now, I hesitate because tomorrow she may be cussing up a storm, you know? (laughs) Those of us with kids know what tomorrow may bring. She may give in completely. But it, right now, she's going through it. You've been through it. You may be going through it. To be a part of the kingdom of God, to follow Christ, is a call to suffer. Secondly, it's a call to repentance and faith. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
The long-awaited kingdom of God is at hand. It's here in the person of Jesus, who is the king. It has been inaugurated. We'll see more of that in chapter 4 and throughout the gospel. It will come in fullness after his second coming. But the response to this, to the reign of Jesus Christ, is repentance and faith. There's at least a couple misconceptions that pop into my mind when I think about this. I think one misconception that people can have, and I hope that you don't, is that because God has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to live a life we couldn't live and to die upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and to rise from the dead in vindication, of who he is and what he had said he'd come to accomplish and to be exalted to the right hand where he is today. Because God has done that, everybody's good. Because God has sent Jesus into the world to accomplish what he came to accomplish, what that means is that everybody's sins are forgiven, including mine. The fact is that that's just not true. The Bible does loudly affirm that God in his love and mercy sent Jesus Christ into the world to be a great Savior. But it just as loudly affirms that you have to respond in repentance and faith. Just because he came and did what he did does not mean your sins are forgiven and that you've been accepted by God and made part of his family and have eternal life. The most famous of all verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here, Jesus calls upon his hearers to repent and believe. To repent is to turn from. To believe is to turn to. On the one hand, this is me and my sin. And what Jesus is calling us to do, who know that we are sinners and whose sin separates us from God, is to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus to be the one who forgives that sin and the one who can help us to overcome that sin. Not perfectly in this life but he gives us his spirit and he gives us his word and he he's with us until the end another misconception is that what Jesus has come to do is to allow me to tip my hat to Jesus and get on back to my sin you mean to tell me that in all of my sin and in all of my rebellion, that in my flesh I love, that all I got to do is believe in Jesus, check a box, say a prayer, all of my sins, past, present, and future are forgiven, and then I can go right back over here, count me in. That's not it at all. 
those in the New Testament who come to faith in Jesus Christ are those who go, I'm a sinner. And sadly, I love it. But I hate it. But I love it. I need forgiveness. And I need help. Jesus, thank you for living a life I couldn't live. Thank you for dying upon a cross to pay the penalty for my sins. You are alive forevermore. Forgive me and help me. And the temptation is still there and the pull is still there and we find ourselves doing this. And but never in the New Testament do you find the picture of a Christian as someone who says, I'll take forgiveness, thank you Jesus, and come right back over here. No. My kingdom is here, Jesus says. Repent and believe. Turn to me to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. So following Jesus is a call to suffer, to serve. It's a call to repentance and faith. Third, it's a call to learn and to live. Verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. Immediately he called to them. I don't think we're crazy to think he said to those fishermen as well, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. To follow Jesus, literally to go after him. He's the leader. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to follow him. couple things here. First of all, notice who receives this call. It's fishermen. He doesn't go to the temple in Jerusalem to the religious of his day, nor does he go to Mars Hill in Athens where he might find the smart intelligentsia of his day. He doesn't go to the political courts of Rome to find the strong and the powerful. He goes to the sea, to the rough and tumble sweaty world of fishermen. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You might not think yourself a religious guy or gal. You might not think yourself very smart. You might not think yourself very powerful. You're just a dude. You're just a gal. Can Jesus save you who aren't so wise, who aren't so strong, who aren't so noble? You bet he can. You're the kind he came for. In fact, as you know, no one is beyond the reach of the power of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, In fact, if you are strong, if you are mighty, if you are rich, if you are powerful, he can save you too. But you got to come like a little baby and admit that for all of your smarts and for all of your power and for all of your this or all of your that, you're nothing at the foot of the cross. And he'll forgive you. And he'll have you. Second, let's ponder on what it might mean to follow Jesus or, or go after him. You'll know I love my old pastor Tom Nelson. He said it's at least five things. He said, number one, it takes humiliation. For you and me, To follow after Jesus means that we have to be humble. We have to take a look at ourselves and realize that we're not as smart as we thought we were. We're not as righteous as we thought we were. We're not as strong as we thought we were. We're not as significant or as big of a deal as we thought we were. The Bible says, let him who thinks he's wise in this present world become ignorant or a fool that he might become wise. We have to look at ourselves and realize that nothing we bring to the table compares to him. And so secondly, after humiliation, it takes admiration. That you notice what you don't have in and of yourself, he does. He is wise, and he is good, and he is strong, and he's significant. The Bible says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. And in the person of God, we find all of the character qualities that we long for and that we love. Whether it be humility or love or courage or selflessness, generosity, All of those things are wrapped up in the person of Jesus. The Apostle John said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The man was full of grace and truth. The Apostle Peter, he used the little phrase, the excellencies of him. We see... Everything that we don't have, he does. 
He is God in the flesh. And he becomes our champion. He becomes our standard. He becomes our model. He becomes the one that we admire and that we are in awe of. I don't have it. He does. Humiliation, admiration, education. You learn about him. You do everything you can to learn about Jesus. You study him in the pages of the scripture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these gospels that are all about his birth and life and ministry and teaching and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, as well as all of the Old Testament that anticipates him, and the book of Acts that proclaims him, and the epistles that explain more about him, and the book of Revelation that consummates all of history in him. You say, I don't have it. He does. I want to learn from him about him. Tommy used to tell us, he said, most Christians use the Bible like people from Transylvania use garlic to keep the vampires away. Just get a little, little bit of garlic just to keep the evil vampires away. Sometimes we can just get a little bit of, little bit of Bible here, a little, little bit of Jesus here, hopefully to ward off the bad stuff. He would say to us, no, if Jesus is the one that we follow, then Jesus is the one we, we don't just sprinkle him. We drink from him. We read the scriptures to learn about him and his ways. Humiliation, admiration, education. Fourth, application. And this is so good. He would say to us, fellas, being a disciple is not studying ancient truths about Jesus merely. That's education. That's not discipleship. That's not following Jesus. Being a disciple is that we study him and we educate ourselves on him and his ways so that we can follow him and do as he does, applying it to our life. The Apostle Paul said we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Paul would say don't let sin reign in your mortal body. The Apostle John would say, the one who abides in him should walk in the same way as he walked. Peter would say, he has left us an example to follow in his steps. We don't merely educate ourselves about Jesus and his ways, but we seek with humble hearts and the power of the Spirit to apply those ways to our lives. To become more like him and then fifth humiliation i don't have it admiration he does education i want to learn everything i can about him and his ways application what i learn i want to apply to my life so i can become conformed to his image fifth 
participation or adoption. As disciples of Jesus, we take his purposes in life and do what he did. And what did Jesus come to do? He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. As the Father sent me from heaven's glory to come here and to accomplish the mission which he had given me to do, so I send you out into the world to represent me and to tell others about me. And so that comes to the final clarification maybe to follow Jesus is a call to suffer and to serve it's a call to repentance and faith it's a it's a call to learn and to live it's a call to fish for men Jesus said to them follow me and I will make you become fishers of men It's interesting, so, so early in, in the gospel, Jesus knows what he's about. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Hey, fellas, y'all follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You too are going to be sent out by me to tell others about the great love of God and what it means to follow him and invite them into this life. This is the way that God's purposes will advance through those that Jesus calls to himself to become fishers of men. And of course, if you know the book of Acts, this becomes the story. After Jesus dies and rises, he gives his authoritative commission to his people. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke would record it like this. Jesus, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Your death upon a cross kind of confused us. But your risen now is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? It's not for you to know. The times are the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And then he ascended back into heaven and sat down at his Father's right hand. The disciples are looking on. And the angel says, what are you doing looking up into the sky? He's going to come back just as you saw him go. They went back to Jerusalem. They prayed. The Holy Spirit came, and they began to fish for men in Jerusalem, then into Judea and Samaria, then up to Antioch, and then into Asia Minor, and then around the Aegean Sea, and then all the way to Rome. And Luke just kind of ends the book of Acts. He didn't, you know, there's no benediction at the end, no 
See you next time. No, to God be the glory, Dr. Luke. He just ends it. And many have felt it's because Luke wanted us to understand as readers that the story goes on and has been going on for the last 2,000 years. God's people called by him to follow him not only humble themselves and admire him and learn of him and apply his truths to him, but then they adopt his purposes for their life. Whether they're a coach or a teacher or a salesman or a computer programmer or whatever it might, homemaker, whatever it is that they do to make a living, that ain't what they're living for. What they're living for is to follow Jesus and help others do the same. They have adopted the purposes of God for their life. Who have we? What a challenge. I went old school this morning as I was just pondering over this thing. Anybody y'all remember Stephen Curtis Chapman? He's, he's still around, so he's not that old school. But this song is old school. For the sake of the call. We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. Nobody stood and applauded them. So they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called to them. He said, come follow me. And they came with reckless abandon. They came. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain. How some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus went with no thought to what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by name. And they answered, we will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. The sake of the call. Drawn like the rivers are drawn to the sea, there's no turning back, for the water cannot help but flow. Once we hear the Savior's call, we'll follow wherever he leads because of the love he has shown and because he has called us to go. Not for a dream or a promise, simply because it was Jesus who called. And if we believe, we'll obey. We will abandon, we will abandon it all the sake of the call. May God give us grace. Let's pray. F Father, this week, would you renew our passion to fish for men? Renew our passion to live on mission with Jesus. Renew our passion to live with gospel intentionality. You have sent us 
into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into those spots here and there all around the city, and not by accident. Our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, they are divine providences. Oh, renew us with your great passion and love for the lost. And oh God, might you give us courage and might you use us to share the great love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. And we'll pray in his name. Amen. Amen.